Hello and welcome back to What Do You Know For Sure podcast with me, Anne Hughes. In this episode, I was joined by Elizabeth Balgobin for a chat about the temporary nature of all things. I'm going to put a trigger warning on this episode. Elizabeth does talk about her suicidal ideation of the past, so if you feel that that would be triggering for you, please do take care of yourself and perhaps don't listen. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Lovely to see you. Tell us a bit about you, Elizabeth. Oh, well, I'm a muddle-aged woman because who knows what middle age means anymore. (laughs) And I work in the voluntary charitable sector. I am the CEO of a mental health charity called the Bowlby Centre, teaching people about attachment theory. And I do bits of consultancy um, in the sector and volunteering. I do weird volunteering. (laughs) But we love the volunteering nonetheless. (laughs) We're in the same sector, so we count on it. So I know that you've been thinking about this since we spoke last year, Elizabeth, and you got back to me at the start of the year to say, I know what I know for sure now. So I'm looking forward to hearing. So tell me, Elizabeth, what do you know for sure? The thing I know for sure is that all things are temporary. And then the bracket I give to that, at best, it's Trigger's Broom. And if you don't know about Trigger's Broom, in Only Fools and Horses, the character of Trigger says he's had the same broom his whole life, basically. But the brush head has been changed and the handle has been changed several times, but it's the same broom. So people, I think, go into a false sense of everything is permanent. Yeah, It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but actually, it's not. It's temporary. And I came to this um, quite late, I think, really. My good friend Lachog is a Buddhist nun. And she was talking to me about the impermanence of things and how things move on. I have a um, I, I had a, a son who was born prematurely and died. And we were talking about the pain of that for me. And she she told me that, you know, from her perspective as a Buddhist nun, Jordan, my son, had come to either fulfil their calling and pass on a lesson mm. to me. And I will move on when I understand the lessons that have been taught to me. Wow. And so this issue about impermanence and all things being temporary sat with me for a long time before I kind of thought, actually, it's true. And then there is a quote which um, uh, sits with this also with me, and I wish I knew who to attribute it to, but um, you're always going to be disappointed if you only remember your failures. Yeah. Um, And I change that slightly and add... But remembering what the failure taught you and the change or difference it made as a result is the lesson from the failure. And I think we can get stuck in feeling that our failure is permanent and it's a permanent state. And my own mental health, when I am well, I move through failure Mm. to that awful word resilience (laughs) quite easily. 
but when I am unwell, I can get stuck in that moment. Mm. So, yeah. But contextualising it for organisations, as charities, our mission may go back to our very foundation. So if we think of those oldest charities, and charity law people sign up for the relief of poverty quite often. And those are intransigent issues. We still have all of the wicked issues that were identified by Joseph Roundtree. Um, They're still there. But the context and the environment they operate in has changed. Mm -hmm. And so we have changed. So poverty is continues to be a wicked issue. But how we think about it is different now. So we talk about relative poverty a lot we talk about what people need as a base income and then you get those people who are kind of stuck in a past that never was who give us the deserving and undeserving poor you know well they've all got a television and an iphone and it's kind of like well they can't get on to (laughs) sort out any of their life if they don't have a smartphone yeah and why if we think of television as the opiate of the masses uh, it certainly is my opiate of choice. Why would you deny someone something that, exactly. for a large extent, is keeping them in a place you want them to be? Uh-huh. Fascinating. I feel there's so much in there now that I want to, I want to chat about the, the lessons that you've been taught. Do you feel as if you've been on a journey of learning in life? I think, you know, there's that, there's some people aren't there that, that just sort of uh, seem to go through life effortlessly. And then I, I would always say that I never I never lose, I win or I learn. So I'm very open to every day being a school day. I hope the day I die I always realize, I also realise something I didn't know before. So I'm very open to the lessons. Do you think you're open to the lessons and therefore how close do you think you, that takes you to learning what they're here to teach you? Yeah, so uh, I've written about this. Um, I, I'm often seen as a Cassandra Um, And I wrote a whole column uh, about this, but um, I believe in the power of negative thinking. So for me, it's it's a positive. If I can see what the problems are likely to be, then I can see the solutions. Um, But other people just see the negativity in that. And uh, and that's been interesting for me. I am very open about talking about things that the time that I've spoken about them, people didn't want to hear me saying them. Mm. So I gave an interview to The Guardian 15 odd years ago about my mental health because somebody asked me from time to change if I would if I would stand up and say, yes, I live with depression. And it's still possible to have uh, a rich and rewarding career and a life, even though sometimes you are dragged down. Yeah. Um, by that depression. And it cost me jobs. It, uh, you know, I, people asked me in interviews because when you, you Google me, it's much further down the page now. Uh, but then when I was looking for work, people would Google and find out what they could about me and they would say, So are you going to be ill here? Wow. They wouldn't ask that now because the environment has changed. Yeah. And more people are much more open about talking about their mental health struggles than they were 15 years ago. But at the time I was doing it, I received criticism, but I also, people who definitely got something out of it. So 
understanding that learning for me that it might harm me and I need to make a judgment about whether I want to bring that upon myself uh-huh. the Cassandra in me kind of going what's the what's the pot- potential of this what's the negative outcome but what's the positive so it, it's um uh, I think we're all open to to learning if we if we are honest it's just sometimes it's hard to acknowledge that we have been learning yeah. on the way yeah um, see, being because that, everyone would be stuck otherwise exactly, if they hadn't exactly. see being that speaker of truth 15 years ago and I'm sure that that wasn't the first time you spoke truth I'm sure you've always been speaking to truth but did you regret did at any point you regret doing that that article with the guardian because of the impact it had or do you still feel it was important that it had to be said um I wouldn't say regret but there are moments where I have thought of oh, the the internet is that bit that feels permanent, but even the internet is temporary. Mm. You know, what people look for, how far they're willing to... I mean, there are uh, people who will dig uh-huh. and will find out. They've got more time than most of the world. And actually, the internet has sped up so much yeah. now that people move on from things much quicker. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose we live in a time when you were speaking about that 15 years ago, that was very much a different time, wasn't it? I don't think that people would have the same reaction to that if they read it now, you would imagine. No, no, they wouldn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't at all. But, you know, not that long ago, five years ago, for Suicide Awareness Day, I talked about my suicidal ideation and the, the last time I was suicidal. And um, the group of people I was talking to, that resulted in a complaint about me at work. I was doing a job where I wasn't at at the CEO level, uh, that I was triggering people and that I needed to go onto um, work mandated EAP. And... What I was talking about was actually my coping strategy Uh and how I've stopped myself from being suicidal. But just the mention of suicide was enough for people to say, no, you shouldn't talk about this. And what does it mean? And it sent me down a bit of a, a spiral. And now I'm less likely to talk to people about my suicide. Do you know what I think is so interesting? Because this happens to me at often as there's what I say and there's what people hear and yeah. those don't always match. No. They don't, don't they not? And that's where the problem lies because people grip onto the point they want to grip onto, even though it wasn't the point I was making. So actually I would now say I'll take responsibility for what I say and you take responsibility for what you hear. Uh I think I'm I'm probably much more conciliatory on that in feeling well and and, you know maybe this is all part of my my self uh valuation means that i i feel it must be my responsibility and and uh and as i say when i'm unwell then i would definitely feel it's my fault and that i need to do something about it or wallow in it but when i was talking about you know the way i cope the way i have set um I don't think about killing myself because I have a plan for killing myself. Wow. Uh, So it means I don't think about it. 
now because I know that the plan is there and I also know I can change my mind. Ah, and there's changing your mind and that takes us right full circle back to all things are temporary, including and what I believe to be true. Including how I feel in that moment. And so my plan has, here I am, 11 years on, and, and actually this recording is just a, a, a few days on from when my last suicide attempt was um, 11 years ago. Right. So, uh-huh. And as an attempt, it wasn't an attempt. It was a, a mitigation for feeling suicidal. So what I did was I went to sleep for two days. Mm. And that's how I manage. So I go to sleep, and when I wake up, the world will be different. And hopefully I will feel different about the world. So sleep is my temporary Uh suicide, if you like. It's It's a management technique that I use. So, see, you said that you've known all things are temporary, not for your whole life, but for a while. How has that yeah. cha- How has that changed your outlook? How does that make you feel about how you move forward with your life? So, in a work sense, it's been really invaluable yeah. um, for me. Organisations can become complacent and not realise that there is a need for change. We've always done it this way. And I've been faced with that in several organisations I've gone into. We've always done it this way. And I kind of go, yes, but the world has moved on. Or in one organisation, we did try that in 1980-something. <laughs> and it didn't work. And I kind of go, okay, but the world has changed now. and The technology is different and it might work now. <laughs> it was a good idea. It just didn't happen to work at that point. Or when you're in that leadership role, it can feel overwhelming when the money isn't coming in or uh, a project that you have put everything into doesn't appear to be delivering the outcomes you thought it would. And you can get stuck in kind of defending the choices that you've made Instead of thinking, what did we learn from it not working? Yeah. How can we change it? And do we have to be brave and say it didn't work and we walk away from it? People get stuck into holding on to things. So letting go has been one of the big things that I have learned about um, all things being temporary. And remembering it's triggers broom. So you can hold on to the same mission in your charity but actually that context means and the approach you take means that it's a bit of trigger's broom and there has been a change mm-hmm. you've changed the handle you've changed the brush head um, and you've done it several times but the mission remains the same it's still a broom yeah you spoke about your failures and how you know you'll be disappointed if you only remember the failures what's your relationship with failure now my relationship with failure is it, it is what is the lesson I have learnt from it. There are some, uh, perhaps, you know, the things that you mask and from yourself as much as anybody else. There will be some of those failures that will resurface yeah. for me. So not being able to have a child feels like a failure for me. There's nothing I could do that would change that. Um, you know, my body 
was a hostile environment, mm. um, uh, essentially. So, so that does feel like a failure, but it's not a failure I could have done anything about. And so I have to reframe that. Have you found a way um, to make peace with your failures, therefore? Well, so the failure to to have a child, the peace I have is that my nibblings, my sister and her husband, have generously uh, allowed me to co-parent, if you like, because we live across the road from each other. Um, my nibblings have had an extra parent. Yeah. I bring the same nurturing that I might have brought into my leadership practice mm. and try and, and think, uh, how would I take that forward? But also into the charities, you know, how do I help them mature into, yeah. into something else? And then there is a sort of basic, quite selfish thing of, well, you know, I had a child, I'm not sure I'd be able to do some of the things that I've done. Yeah. It would have taken away mm-hmm. time from those things. So my career probably would not have been as it has been. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I was bringing up a child on my own. Yeah. I think that often I, I can go to being almost naively positive about things sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, I really get that about myself. But I would often say even... But that's not a bad thing. Uh, even in the midst of chaos and shit storms, I would say it's all perfect. Now that gets me through many a shit storm mm-hmm. because I do believe it in that moment. I do believe this was happening exactly the way it was meant to happen, and I learned something in the process of fixing it. Can you feel as if it's perfect? And I, I, I ask that from a place of someone who always says that, so I appreciate if that's not you. As I said, it can be a bit naive. Do you feel as if it's been perfect? The way the cards have fallen for you? Uh, I, I would not say I've had a perfect life the way the cards have fallen not what I had envisaged for myself but even that that vision of what your future is going to be is temporary exactly because the you learn more or you experience something else and you adjust what you see you might need to start wearing glasses as I (laughs) as I do now your vision changes Yep. Sometimes you choose not to wear them because the world blurry feels better yeah. uh, at that moment. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, you put them back on because you need to see something clearly. Yeah. And you realise how far you've come. I used to keep a diary, but actually looking back on it, is, I didn't find useful. Mm. So although I was, I was charting the changes... I didn't find it useful to go back over it. Um, And now I have the challenge now that I am studying counselling and therapy. I'm required to keep a reflective journal on the things that I learn about myself. And my challenge back is, but I reflect all the time. Yeah. Just I don't write it all down. I'm doing an internal reflection Mm. all the time. I think I reflect an awful lot, but I don't keep a diary. And as you know, I've got a bit of a a memory issue because of my brain injury. And I actually quite like that I've forgotten some stuff. And sometimes it'll pop back and I think, oh, I thought I had forgotten that and I've just remembered it. 
and I quite like I like being in a no man's land sometimes where I can't remember very much, but I'm just going to plow on forward and see where I get to because there's something in that. I think that would scare some people, but I quite enjoy. I actually quite enjoy that. But I suppose, like you saying, you stopped writing a diary because you didn't find it useful to be reading that stuff. We have to work out what works for us, don't we? We do. We do. And so, you know, my diary is a record of what happened then. Mm -hmm. Um, And for somebody else reading it, they can see that going back, things did change and the temporary nature of it. But what you've just said about your brain injury, actually talking about memory Mm -hmm. as temporary. Um, So temporary (laughs) because literally there's, I can't remember things. I can't remember conversations still. I write everything down in case I forget a conversation or something I've said I'll do. Um, I mean, I work very well now. It's fine. I get on with it. I've worked, I can work around my memory issues. But I think that notion of everything is temporary, even even my memories, even at that stage. It was actually six years ago yesterday that my brain went pop. So this time six years ago, I was in a terrible way. And even my ability to speak had gone. My ability to walk had gone. Everything was temporary. Yeah, and look at you now. Here you are speaking yeah. and working yeah. um, and with the occasional thing. But but if we think about memory of people without brain injury, it's common parlance to say, oh, I forgot to do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So memory is temporary. Uh, for me, it feel, there's also the issue that my mother had d- dementia and so that change of memory. So... Dementia is the thing that scares me more more than anything else. Mm. And so I'm very aware of if I can't recall something or if I do that thing of, you know, why am I going to the fridge when what I was trying to do was find my glasses? Um, (laughs) You know, that that will play on me for a little while. But that's temporary too. Most of these things are temporary. You just have to... You can keep something for a very long time, but it's not in the state yeah. that it was in when you first got it. So it might be feel like a permanent thing, but it erodes. Stonehenge feels permanent to us, but it's had work done on it exactly. to preserve it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we can do is do a bit of preservation yeah. for the things that we want to hold on to, but they are not in the state that they were. Their triggers brew. And I think, uh, isn't it beautiful, the idea that we can let stuff go that we thought was permanent, and it isn't. Yeah. That's very empowering thought. Or it lets us go. Yeah. And through our memory, we, we can't recall it. And you still carry on. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing all your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Hello and thank you for joining me on this episode of What Do You Know For Sure podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can do that across social media by searching Anne Hughes Ignite. 
If I refer to my radio show and the podcast, you can catch those on my Mixcloud. Again, just searching Anne Hughes Ignite. And if you or anybody you know want to answer this question with me, please do get in touch. Just go onto my website, annehughesignite.co.uk and fill in the contact page at the bottom and I'll be delighted to have this conversation with you too. Thank you.